Good morning, everyone. So nice to see you. Three-dimensional people. <laughs> so nice. You guys too. <laughs> and two-dimensional people. I mean, multi-dimensional people. <laughs> Wonderful to see you. This is a this is Sangha life. This is what it is. How many of you noticed my toenails? <laughs> Very advanced practice to have silver toenails. <laughs> so today I want to talk about uh, radical hope, hope, uh, and Sangha. Our lovely Kotanto. There she is. Talked about Sangha recently. And we talk about Sangha quite a bit. So Sangha is one of the three jewels. It is with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three jewels of practice. So Sangha means uh, this. And it also means that. And it also means Berkeley Zen Center connection, because Richard is here and he practiced at Berkeley Zen Center for 25 years. And it means San Francisco Zen Center and San Antonio is all connected. And it's a powerful support for practice, but it's also um, a powerful way to uh, meet pressure. So jewels are these things that can be formed by pressure and also withstand tremendous pressure. So a sangha is both continually transforming, always changing, open source, very open to new um, information, new learnings, but it's also a very um, protective um, phenomenon. We're protected in our sangha. We're also, our sangha, Various people have mentioned to me sometimes that they feel pressured by the Sangha. I don't know. <laughs> Ever feel that? <laughs> the expectations or the learnings that you go undergo inside a Sangha. So it's a, it's a, a living phenomenon, what a Sangha is. And yet it's a jewel and it's equal to the Buddha and the Dharma. So I'm appreciating the Sangha today. Also, um, I'm going to talk about other sanghas and what we can learn from, from some other sanghas facing uh, pressure. So we are, as a sangha, are always in communication directly or indirectly with other sanghas. They're watching us. They're watching our protocol around the pandemic. Uh, we're watching them. We're sharing information. We already have faced, if you recall, big pressure in our sangha from the freeze, we faced it from other natural disasters. And then with the pandemic, that was a huge pressure on Sangha. And for us, our local Sangha, we um, decided in our way of deciding things, which is also very open source, that this isn't run by a single uh, voice, but I mean, it may look like Vicky runs everything. <laughs> actually, we have a board of directors, we have a practice committee, we have a safety committee, 
we've had uh, building and grounds committee. So we're just full of committees and all of those are transformative places for people who are on those committees. And they're also um, sources for guidance of our Sangha. So each of these committees and each of us really is in, in touch with the source. So we have two levels of Sangha life at least. And one level is this conventional reality, getting together, learning each other's names, learning how to recognize each other from this area <laughs> um, conventionally and conventionally deciding together as a Sangha, what's going to be our practice now. We're continuing with the masks indoors for a while longer because our safety committee feels that that's the safest course, but, but we're still requiring vaccinations and so on. So things will continue to adapt. This is our way. And it might seem um, cautious, or it might even seem like everything is always the same. But again, it's transformation. It's always transforming what's happening in our Sangha. People are developing. The Sangha itself is developing. It's an amazing phenomenon, actually. So I still uh, like to learn about how other sanghas um, handle pressure. And one of the sources of my, my theme, I guess, of hopefulness comes from the Japanese-American community. And you recall... When was it? Duncan Williams came and Duncan Williams has really unearthed a lot of detailed information about the Japanese American community um, and their actual situation and then their actual resilience when so many thousands and thousands of Japanese Americans uh, and initially primarily all the Buddhist Japanese Americans were put into camps uh, during World War II. And I'm, I don't want to really gloss over, I don't want to gloss over the injustice of that and the life-threatening quality of it and the many ramifications, loss of property, loss of lives, and so on that happened. That's true. And there was a real profound resilience demonstrated in these communities and it showed up, Duncan has just put together a big exhibit at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. And so I attended a Zoom tour of that. And then there's a recording of it. So I will give you all the link because it was really beautiful and very profound. Because imagine if our Sangha were suddenly to be isolated individually and put into a few different camps far away. And that's what happened here. All your friends and all your family are suddenly whisked away and you're in a variety of camps. They didn't just say, well, the entire Houston Zen Center Sangha gets to go to Beaumont. You know, half of us go to Beaumont, half of us go to Wyoming, something like that. And yet inside these camps, the, the Buddhist communities um, recreated their ceremonies. They brought the ceremonies that united them as uh, Sangha in their original temples. And they made handmade beautiful ceremonial objects to keep themselves um, connected to the source. 
And some of them made beautiful altars, hand-carved altars using the materials at hand. It's, it's, it's a demonstration of a kind of uh, courage and hopefulness that it just really inspired me. So I recommend that you all look at that, that show and think about that. One way of, of handling our what we're facing in our world today, warfare, um, surprising um, developments in what's happening in Russia. One way to think about that, of course, is to um, lean into the tragedy of it all. And another way is to really stay quite alert and deal with it as a sangha. Talk to people and keep an open um, awareness of what's happening. And here we are facing war again. And of course, climate change outside of our ability to understand it. We really need Sangha to help us meet this pressure. And that's what the Japanese Americans found. They needed each other to um, withstand the pressure they were under. Our, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, Dogen Zenji, uh, really appreciated Sangha. He was... His writings are amazingly important and beautiful and poetic, and sometimes they're quite cranky and bossy, but they're a variety, but he was an incredibly brilliant thinker, and he really appreciated Sangha. So even though he had this tremendous understanding of both conventional reality and the ultimate wisdom that runs through all things, he knew people needed to be in Sangha in order to really transform it's one of the reasons why he moved his temple up into the hills, remote hills of uh, Japan. And there he really established a Sangha life and including naming different people to be various roles, like the director, the head of the meditation hall, the treasurer, um, the work leader, and the Tenzo, the head cook. He wrote quite a bit about each of those roles, but he wrote really be also, he wrote very beautifully about the role of the Tenzo, the head cook. And here are two of his guidelines for the head cook, which I want to talk about today here. One, know what is in the storehouse. Know the ingredients that are there. And two, create a nourishing meal for practice and health using the ingredients you have. That's a pretty good guideline for a Tenzo. Know what's in the storehouse and make a nourishing meal out of that. And it's also a metaphor for our individual practice. Know what's in the storehouse and create a beautiful, helpful presence out of that. So pay attention to what's in this storehouse, this storehouse, it's unique. And it also changes over time because you might run out of patience. <laughs> oh, the storehouse is a little low on patience right now. Okay, I think I'll access um, a wisdom. Okay, I'll get some wisdom going. <laughs> you never run out of patience. I didn't mean to point you. <laughs> you might run out of patience. <laughs> Or you might forget that, you know, wisdom is running through all things and interconnectedness is coursing underneath all of this visible reality. You might kind of forget that. 
So you access patients, for instance. Well, I've got a lot of patients. Or I've got my one friend at the Sangha and I can call them. That's in my storehouse. I've made this connection. So Dogen told us as the, in the role of the Tenzo to do that, but he really meant each of us should be doing it all the time. And then um, what we recognize in Sangha life is that when we first join a Sangha, it might be that you came because you realize that's where all the Buddhas are practicing and you want to, you yourself are a Buddha and you want to hang out with them. That might be why you came to the Sangha. A bunch of radiant bodhisattvas and I'm also radiant, so I'll go over there and hang out with them. That's very nice. And you'll keep coming back because your radiance kind of grows when you're with them. Like that. that might be why you start practice. But other reasons for starting practice are you're kind of stressed and you'd like to learn how to meditate. Or you've heard something about Zen and you'd like to be completely equanimous no matter what happens to you. And then you come here and you find out people are just as passionate and <laughs> facing the same thing. But we're facing the same things together. But after a while in Sangha life, the transformation continues. So even if we're starting out thinking, I'm just going there for stress relief and actually end up more stressed after the Sangha day, so maybe I'll stop going for a while. Something pulls us back and then the transformation continues and some realization that we do this practice for others. We, we're doing this for others. Others are benefiting from our practice at least as much as each of us is aware of. That's one of the real strong um, aspects of Sangha life. Other people benefit. One of our great masters in the old days, he's in the Rinzai lineage, so he's not actually on our lineage chart, but he was very famous, great master Joshu, and he had wonderful pithy sayings, and Mary Carroll planted a, an oak tree in the, in the yard two years ago, three years ago, some years ago, five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. We dug this hole. It's true. It was quite small back then, wasn't it? Now it's really big. And since it's an oak tree, she named it Joshu's Oak because Joshu often talked about trees. Trees in our lineage are fair in, in life, are very important. So that's Joshu's Oak back there. This story is a little bit different. A visitor comes to Joshu um, and says, what is the Sangha? The master said, what else is there but it? The monk said, what is a person of the Sangha? The master said, me and you. So for Joshu, who was completely rooted, radically rooted in the ultimate, always saw the wisdom coursing through all things and expressed it in these very enigmatic statements, but they're coming from the source through Joshu. So when somebody says, what is the Sangha? Of course he could say, what else is there but it? You, me, trees, everything is part of it. But then the monk, obviously, since it just says the monk, that means that um, if it said, uh, 
like Robbie then said, then that means they, they got it on the mark. But since it just says the monk, it means he kind of missed the mark. The monk said, what is a person of the Sangha? And the master said, me and you. And this has stayed with me forever. Ever since I first read that, it's, it's not us or something. It's me and you. It's the, it's the connection. It's the connectedness. And he, he saw that. There is no Sangha that's just this individual, this individual. It's the, it's the you-ness. And he always saw that. He never lost sight of that. And once, once you're a bodhisattva, those all of you bodhisattvas in the room, you know that too. We're all connected. We're all different. We all have different storehouses, and we're all connected. It's the way it works. So the when Duncan put together the show of artifacts from the various uh, camps, prison camps that the Japanese Americans were in, you, I, I really encourage you to look at the show because they're just beautiful. Why would somebody with some skill car, spend so many hours hand carving out of these random pieces of wood in the prison camps and, and then joining them together to make a beautiful uh, altar, except for the Sangha, as a member of the Sangha and for the benefit of the Sangha. There's one... Um, Definition of Sangha. I'm not sure. I just got this at, at a quick pass of Wikipedia, sorry. <laughs> but I looked for definition of Sangha. Instead of looking into the Pali dictionaries, I went to Wikipedia. So I confess. <laughs> but a person in an article in Tricycle, uh, Andrew Olensky, so I can't verify this, but I liked what he said. Apparently, Sangha means to bring together into a group as a community, he said it, it's the same meaning in both Pali and Sanskrit. And he said it can also refer to a flock of crows or a herd of deer, like a sangha of deer. But when it shows up in Buddhist texts, it uh, refers to this. I'm fine with crows and deer being part of our sangha and opossums and rabbits <laughs> and snakes. So my next story of a resilient Sangha is really about radical hope. And again, I'm not going to um, enumerate all the injustices that were involved, but uh, go into what, what I felt so hopeful about after reading this story. And it's about um, the Crow people, which I sort of is a surprising resonance with Sangha. And the Crow people, on this continent called themselves the, um, the children of the big, great beaked bird. And French people said, well, they must mean le corbeau. They must mean the crow. So we call them crow, but they, their name was children of the great beaked bird. And we don't know anymore what, what bird that was. Was it a mythical bird? Because a lot of their decisions as a people came from their dream life. They came from the source, ultimate reality for the crow people, not just conventional reality. So they came from prophetic dreams about who they were and where they should move around to. So another story from Joshu, 
this great old monk. A monk said, when great difficulties come upon us, how can they be avoided? The master said, what do you think he said? Bodhisattvas. Don't avoid them. Very good. See, bodhisattvas surround us. Joshu said, a monk asked, when great difficulties come upon us, how can they be avoided? The master said, welcome. <laughs> and I think that includes even welcoming avoiding. Welcome. So this, the story about the crow is organized mostly about around their great chief, their last great chief during the time of um, white people pushing across the continent. His name was uh, Many Excellences or Plenty Coup, like the coup where you, the coup stick of uh, the crow people. And he, when he was a very young boy, asked if he could go on a, a dream quest. So he was nine, actually he had his first important dream when he was eight, but when he was nine, this was before there'd been much encroachment on their um, ancestral lands, which were vast and kind of contested with other Native American tribes. But um, when he was nine, he went through a sweat bath and then fasted and then went into the wilderness and started having dreams and then came back to the, um, oh, sorry, there was a little part of it I wasn't gonna say. <laughs> But he, was, he got a little impatient. He, the dreams weren't coming. So he did what a lot of young crow did. He cut off part of his finger to prove that he was serious. So that's, don't do that. <laughs> We're all serious here. <laughs> he had a prophetic dream. And the way it works, it's not that he decided what that dream meant. And now my whole, everybody's going to follow this dream. He, he brought the dream back. Individuals would bring the dream back to elders who then decide what it means. And they decide whether it's a no account dream or a wish fulfillment dream or a dream about property they want to own or actually a dream that the tribe needs to pay attention to. So his dream was something that the elders thought needed to be paid attention to. And it stayed active in his life for the whole rest of his life. So do you want to hear the dream? Yeah. <clears throat> Because this dream was so lodged in their um, history as a people, it came to protect them. And so it's one of the sources of the radical hope. They knew they were going to have to adapt. This dream told them that adaptation was going to be necessary. And we as a Sangha, I, would, I invite you to appreciate how we've adap adapted to circumstances. I think uh, we have had these urges occasionally where it's like, no, we just want to do the strict Zen thing. Everybody has to sit on the porch for seven days before they're allowed in. And then, then they have to sit for five more days inside before they're allowed to speak. And then, uh, then what did they have to do? So we don't do that. <laughs> but we've also had other urges. Well, like we're past that, but maybe we should only meet in person and never have Zoom. Maybe we should stick with that plant our acoustic there and not back down. So we've decided not to do that. Everything is transforming all the time in communication with the source. So in his dream, young, they call him plenty crew, 
coup or many excellences, he dreamed that a, a, a bull buffalo, who was also a person, came up out of a hole in the ground. So imagine you're on this vast American continent, and as far as the eye can see, there are buffalo, because that's how it was. Countless millions of buffalo roamed this continent. In the dream, buffalo came up out of the ground, and then he became a it was buffalo person, then he became a man person, and he saw a little plenty coo and said, Look. And he pointed to the hole in the ground, and out of the hole in the ground came countless bulls and cows and calves covering the plain as far as you could see. And then they kept going, and then there were none left. And then the man person pointed to the hole in the ground again and said, look. And out of the hole in the ground came spotted animals, bulls and cows and calves. And they were spotted. They were different colors. They had this long tail. They made a very wimpy kind of moo instead of the big bellow of buffalo. And instead of staying in a big mass, they settled in these little clans. And they would sit down. And they sat in a different way than buffalo. And then uh, they all vanished. And then he, uh, man person asked Plenty Koo if he understood. And Plenty Koo said, no, I don't understand. He was gonna have to take this back. So what there, what's coming up in this dream is, an, is a change in reality so extreme he can't even begin to understand. So Plenty Coup eventually will guide his people through a change in reality so extreme that all the, the concepts of their previous lives would collapse because their lives were based on buffalo. All the ceremonies were around getting ready to go be with the buffalo and hunt the buffalo. And what the dream was telling them was there would be no more buffalo, which is what happened. And years later, a, uh, a white person came to hear Plenty Coup recite this dream and asked what that was like. And Plenty Coup, a very wise chief, um, said, after the buffalo left, nothing happened. It's like reality stopped. However, in actual conventional reality, things happened. He led his his tribe, they, he took up farming and demonstrated he didn't have to be a great warrior and hunter. He would do what, um, what, he, what he needed to do. Their tribe stayed together. Their tribe was never defeated by the white army. And that's because of these, a second part of the dream. Two more parts I want to tell you about. Um, in the dream, uh, Plenty Coup sees an old and feeble man sitting under a tree because across the entire plain, all the trees have been knocked down but one. Are you okay? Should I tell you this? Okay. <laughs> the hearts are open. Yeah. So he sees an old and feeble man. Remember, Plenty Coup is nine. He sees an old and feeble man sitting under a tree, and the man person says that the old man is Plenty Coup in the future. 
and that there is a tremendous storm in which the four winds begin a war against the forest and all the trees are knocked down but one. And this, when he took this part back to the elders, was phenomenal news because the tribe's um, understanding of hardship was that one of the winds would come. Okay, that wind has come and things are now in total disarray and we will uh, rebuild. But this was a time when all four winds had gathered together, which was unheard of, not even in their mythology. And the dream was telling them that something so huge was going to push their life apart. The four winds were going to gather together and the entire forest would be knocked down. But Plenkiku would be sitting under the last remaining tree. That was a prophetic dream. And then uh, one remaining part of the dream I want to tell you. So the, uh, the man person told him, to listen to the chickadee. Have any of you seen the chickadee? Oh, they're they're adored, they're gorgeous and they're quite chattery. And uh, the last remaining bird person after the four winds was a chickadee person in a chickadee lodge in that tree. So the chickadee person is a good listener. This is what uh, the dream told Plantiku. He is least, he, the chickadee, he is least in strength, but strongest of mind among his kind. He is willing to work for wisdom. The chickadee person is a good listener. Nothing escapes her ears, which she has con sharpened by constant use. Whenever others are talking together of their successes and failures, there you will find the chickadee person listening to their words. But in all her listening, she tends to her own business. She never intrudes, never speaks in strange company, and yet never misses a chance to learn from others. She gains successes and avoids failure by learning how others succeeded or failed, and without great trouble to herself. The lodges of countless bird people were in the forest when the four winds charged it. Only one person is left unharmed, the lodge of the chickadee person. Develop your body, plenty coo but do not neglect your mind. It is the mind that leads a person to safety, not strength of body. So one way, typical way of understanding a dream like this is that it's an anxiety dream. And it is an anxiety dream, imagine. Um, but the way of understanding it as an anxiety dream of one person would mean that Plentiku had to, would have to resolve this or be overwhelmed by this. But in a sangha, the uh, crow sangha, the beloved community of the crow, he took it to the elders and they all held it. And yet in the coming decades, they would face anxiety. Everybody in their community would feel the anxiety of the pressure, of what was happening against their community and their tribe. And they knew they had to face it together. So the anxiety doesn't go away. The anxiety was a very appropriate response of watching reality completely change in ways you couldn't anticipate. So their model became the chickadee person, the listening and ad adapting and plenty coup, great warrior and um, buffalo hunter whose whole life was organized around ceremonies for 
doing that, going to war and hunting buffalo, became a farmer and continued to lead his community. And he told his children and their children to listen and adapt. So in the first generation of Crow people, there were people who went to law school and became lawyers. And the whole Crow nation is very strong on protecting their treaties. So they adapted and learned and did not collapse as a community. Makes me anxious to talk about it. So imagine a community so in touch with messages from the spirit world, in touch, but interpreting this mess, the message is coming from ultimate reality, the spirit realm, so in touch and adaptable and resilient. So I ended up feeling very hopeful after reading this and feeling um, the importance of resilience in the face of many unpredictable changes to come in our world, many unpredictable strong forces coming to us. So I hope maybe we should rename our center Chickadee Lodge. <laughs> We're Chickadee Lodge, Chickadees on the Gulf Coast. No? Where are they? They're further north, I think. Further north, okay. The Crow people live, now their lands are all in my, uh, Wyoming and Montana. So, uh, We'll find another very chatty bird, Mockingbird, Mockingbird Lodge. <laughs> the birds are our friends. Oh, and one other, one other part of this story. Um, when he was a very old man, he lived a very old age. He invited uh, their their tribe was very coherent, but he invited um, a white. Uh, I don't know what his job was, anthropologist. He invited a white writer to come and hear his story because they'd been an entirely oral culture and he wanted his, he knew what writing meant, that his story would be preserved. So he told this, the whole dream, the whole story of the people up to the point of the, the buffalo vanishing. And he said after that to the white writer, whose name I forget, after this, you know it as well as I do. After this, it's your reality we entered. But he told the whole story up to that, and he told about the dream, and he then told the writer, I'm sitting here, an old man under the one tree on the reservation. This is my dream. So, hope and resilience. <laughs>